Well, he stood staring at the painting entitled Checkmate. Chess grandmaster on vacation with his wife in Europe in an art gallery, staring at the painting entitled Checkmate. This painting was of the devil sitting across the table playing chess with a young man. And the devil looked proud and tall and had his chest puffed out like you are a defeated foe. And across the table was this young man with his head down, sweating, worried, because the devil, he thought, had him at checkmate. This chess grandmaster began to look further at the picture further at the actual chessboard in the painting because the painting on surface value was just, hey, this guy, poor guy's checkmate by the devil. And he began to look closer and closer and he took a few minutes and then he began to laugh really loud. And his wife said, what are you laughing at? We're in an art gallery. And he turns to his wife and he says, This poor guy didn't realize that he had one more move, that his king checkmates the devil. Can I ask you this morning, are you like that young man? Maybe you've been duped into thinking that Satan is the one who's making the final move, that he calls the shots, that he's in control. I mean, look around, it kind of appears that way, doesn't it? But there's good news The only move that the evil one can make in your life are the moves that you give him to make. You've got to to understand that, though, to understand that cosmic battle that rages on, that's been going on from creation or even before creation between the forces of evil and the forces of good. You've got to understand the biblical storyline. You've got to understand that there's this cosmic battle that's been happening. But see, the creator God has created angels. And some of those angels, one of the highest angels, the archangel, has fallen. He fell. You can go and read about it in God's word. In Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, and other places, you can read about the fall of this highest archangel that we know as Lucifer or Satan, that he fell from grace because of his pride and he brought angels with him, now demons with him. And you've seen from the beginning of time when Adam and Eve encounter the serpent of old, the ancient serpent that Jesus in the book of Revelation speak about and how he deceives and lies to Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam and Eve, the human race, God's holding out on you. There's a better way. And he deceives them into believing that there's a better way, that there's a more fun way to live than by living under the shadow of the wing of God. And since that place, God has promised some things, though. He's promised in that cosmic battle that he will crush the serpent's head. And in the end, we know as believers in Christ, that will happen. And yet, God in his sovereign plan, for his glory even, even when we can't understand it, he allows Satan and his minions to roam and to try to deceive 
And you see it all the way through the Old Testament where he's this roaring lion crouching at the door, waiting. And you come to the New Testament and you see these demons in front of Jesus where demons are being cast out by Jesus. And what does the demon say? Anybody remember? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? The time has not yet come. The demons know what's coming. And yet, there's this cosmic battle going. And in the end, we know who wins. And yet, Satan roams around. That's the biblical storyline. So when we pull back the curtain on the material world, do you really believe that the biblical storyline is really real? Or do you say, I live in the natural world and so I can't see it, so therefore it doesn't really exist? Do you buy the biblical storyline that there's more to the story, there's more to the world than the material world, that there's a spiritual battle raging between God and Satan, between God's angels and demons. Do you believe that? It, or maybe it sounds a little too sci-fi for you. Maybe it sounds a little bit too antiquated to your 21st century mind, that you're this realist. How does it sound to you? What's your response? Are you like the young chess player? Maybe you freeze. Satan's too powerful. He has control. Or maybe there's a different painting in your mind. Maybe you just believe that it's just a figment. It's not freeze, it's a figment of the imagination that we really just battle here, people here, things here in the material world. Or maybe your response is, I'm really scared. I don't know what to do, so maybe it's not freeze or figment, maybe it's flight. I just run away and maybe I forget. Maybe I just pretend like it's not there. Or maybe I'm so consumed with my busyness and all the things of my life and my comfort and my ease that I forget it's even there. That may be more palatable. What's your response? Or is it this? Is the painting different? Is it fight? What does the Bible say? And if it's fight, what does that look like and what does that not look like? Maybe that's even a better question. What does it look like for us as believers in Jesus to fight? What does the Bible say to us? For the Christian, God calls us. Here's the answer, and I'm going to unpack it. God calls us to stand firm. Not to run away, not to run ahead, but stand firm. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at the end of the book, Ephesians 6. 10 through 14, where Paul says, finally. I don't know if he feels like it's too long. Finally. He's going to give us the conclusion. And maybe you think, hey, this is a little bit out of, uh, out of sync. He's just talked to us about how to work under authority or in authority. He's just talked to us about parenting kids and kids, how you ought to submit to your parents. He's talked to us about marriage and how we walk through this journey rooted in the riches of his grace that he's given us. So what in the world does that have to do with spiritual warfare, spiritual battle? Think about your marriage. Think about parenting. Think about work. Think about journeying in this life. If we're left to ourselves, we're in trouble. We've got to understand the battle that's around us that maybe we can't even see. Ephesians 6 10 through 14. The other thing is this. There's a little background you've got to understand. When we began the book of Ephesians, the bookends are this. 
Paul begins to speak to these Ephesians who care about the spiritual realm, the cosmic realm. Many of their occultic practices are rooted in the power of the spiritual realm. And he reminds them in chapter 1 that Christ is the end authority, that he's the end authority in all realms. And he comes to the bookend here, and he comes back to it. So we've learned in the book that we sit that we sit under Christ, that we walk with Christ, and here we stand. Check it out with me. I want to show you how to stand, and maybe how not to stand. I want to show you how God's people today face spiritual realities, spiritual battle realities that rage today just like they did then. Three things. Let me read it. Why don't we stand as we close out the book here? We need a little energy. I think y'all need a little move around a little bit this morning. I don't know if it's the end of the school year. I don't know what it is. But let's read this together. I'll read it. You follow along. Words on up here. Paul says this, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, C3, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Here's the armor of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, not just yourself, all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, in the battle, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak even in the battle, so that also you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you, delivering the letter, for that very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And here's the benediction. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Would you sit down? Would you have a seat? So how is the question? Here's the question. How do we stand firm? The first thought this morning is this. God's people have to first wise up in the battle. Wise up in the battle. Do you even see the battle? Do you know it's there? Do you know one of the greatest tricks of the enemy is to make you think that he doesn't exist? And if he does, not a big deal. Nothing to see here. You think that's working in our world? Nothing to see here? But look at the battle language. 
Clearly, there is a battle that you see all the way through the scripture, and it's super clear here. You also get some intel on the enemy. Look at it. Look at verse 12. The schemes stand against what? Look at this language, standing firm, evil one. Schemes. Schemes are manipulative strategies that the evil one, Satan, the fallen angel who roams around like a roaring lion, uses against you. So we find some intel. We understand that Satan is not this just little play toy, this antiquated play toy that doesn't mean anything. No, he's evil. And he has schemes that he's trying to manipulate you with in your life. There's your intel. There's clearly a battle, but he wants you to think there's nothing to see here. Let me ask you this morning, C3, are you caught up in the ease and the busyness of the temporal world and you go, man, I, I don't even pay attention to this. I don't even think sometimes with the things going on in my life that there is a spiritual battle raging behind the scenes. Or maybe when things in your life go south, spiritual things in your life go south, you look for material answers for spiritual problems over and over and over again. Maybe if I just drink more, I'll drink it away. Maybe if I just seek secular counseling, that will help me cope. Maybe if I just ignore it. Maybe if I just have people to tell me how great I Listen, you cannot solve spiritual problems with material answers. And so maybe we're caught up into not seeing. Maybe we're mixed up into how to deal with the problems that we have, keep looking, notice something. Where is this battle? You see that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, even though oftentimes what we do is we fight against flesh and blood, don't we? We'd rather fight the battle over all kinds of cultural minutia and mess, and those things aren't small things, but that's not the main battle. Do you see it? We don't fight against flesh and blood, so maybe we're mixed up. Maybe we're fighting the wrong kind of battles. I mean, how stoked and frustrated and passionate do you get about your politics? Do you get that passionate about sharing the gospel with people? Do you get that passionate about the real power that changes things in our world? I would confess that often I look at the world and I want to fight against flesh and blood. How about you? Do you get caught up? Do you get mixed up? I'm guilty of it. Are you? Look at this. Where is this battle? This battle, it says, is in the heavenly places. Who are the primary combatants in this battle? Notice. Is it you and me? Primary combatants. Primary combatants in this battle in the heavenly places is not you and it's not me. It's God versus Satan. It's demons versus angels. It's God's army versus Satan's army. Do you see that? That doesn't mean that we aren't the plebes all right, that we aren't civilians or plebes in the battle. I'm going to show you how we relate to the battle in just a minute. But notice, it's really important to notice that the real battle that's going on is not what you see, even in the psycho culture that we live in and all the stupid things going on in our world that we're frustrated at, and rightfully so. But the main battle is behind that. Remember what Ephesians said about people? about you and me before we knew Christ, what does it say? It says we were dead at our trespasses and sins. 
And you can see that alive and well in the world that we live in, that the people that you look at across the way on the other side, they're dead in their trespasses and sins too. And they need the power of Christ. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean that we don't engage in discourse, but it certainly means that you've got to understand the right battle that you really need to fight. So what do we do? <laughs> If we're not the primary combatants, if we're not really on the front lines, because we know that the enemy targets civilians. He targets you and I. So shouldn't we fight back? I mean, I'm the Braveheart guy. I'm like, take the hill. Let's do this. Look at what it says. It says to do what in verse 13? It says to stand firm over and over. Stand, be strong, stand firm. What does standing firm mean? It means you don't move from where you're at. It doesn't mean retreat. It doesn't mean run to the front lines in the heavenly places where God fights for you, which we're going to see, but it certainly means stand where you're at. Don't move from where you're at. And how in the world do we do that? Here's why we can do that. Flip back to Ephesians 1. Here's why. Paul is praying, look at, look at it, verse 20 through 23, just before that, this is a prayer from Paul to these Ephesians, and he says, I'm praying for your wisdom to wise up, and here's why you can have wisdom, because the power of sin in your life is broken because of the cross and what Christ has done for you, and so there's power there for you to fight, there's wisdom there for you, and he gets to verse 20. And he says, all of that is rooted in the immeasurable greatness of his power because of the cross. And then he says in verse 20, that Christ, that God has worked in Christ, he raised him from the dead, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, here's heavenly language, cosmic places, far above, how much rule? All. All rule and authority and power. Christ is supreme over the forces of darkness, over Satan and demons who wage war against God, who wage war and target us, the civilian population. They don't fight fair, but notice, Christ is ruling and reigning over all of it. His power, his dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's put how many things? Under his feet, all things. And he gave us a head over the church. He loved the church, laid his life down for it, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why can we stand? How can we stand? We stand because of what Christ has done for us. We stand under the umbrella of his wings. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Where do you go in a war? It's been a while. Maybe some old timers can remember these drills. If there are enemy planes overhead and they are dropping bombs, where are you supposed to go? Kids in school's like, I'm going to go under my desk. You go to the bomb shelter, don't you? You go where there is protection from the enemy's assault. Christ is the bomb shelter. He's the bomb shelter. He's protection for you. He's where you are covered and we get in trouble when we come out of that shelter and we're like, hey, there's, there's nothing going on here. No bombs being dropped here. 
And we come out. I want to make a specific application in this place about wising up to the battle to, to our young folks in the room. The battle's real. You're protected by Christ. But you can't get caught up in the original lie of the evil one that says, God's holding out on you. There's way more out there for you than what God has given you. There's fullness of joy, there's f- happiness out there, there's things beyond my care that are better for you, don't get caught up in it. It's a lie from the evil one. Believe, wise up and believe that God has your best. He has fullness of life for you. Believe that. And here's the beauty though. When you wander, teenagers or adults, when you wander out the bomb shelter. Yeah, my hearts are prone to wander. I've wandered out of the bomb shelter. You've wandered out of that bomb shelter. The door's still open. Believe that. The door is still, of his grace, is still open. The bomb shelter's still open. You can come back where there's protection. Hear that. A lot to consider here, to wise up, see the enemy, understand it, Don't get mixed up, caught up in it, but you also have to do something else. Do you see it in this text? You have to gear up. You see the whole armor of God that you have to gear up fully. I told you last week about one of my grandfathers, how he was in World War II and he was a postman, kind of away from the battle with my other grandfather on my dad's side was in the third wave of Normandy. And he drove half tra- a half-track tank. Third wave of Normandy. I think we have a picture here. It's basically a glorified truck. Look at the front end. It's a glorified truck. If you're in World War II, you know anything about the Nazis? They have Panzer tanks. And if you look at the half-tracks that the Nazis had, I mean, these things look like nothing. Half-track tank. The, oh, look, look at it. There's a machine gun in the back, and it's open. There's some steel around the back. They used these things early at Normandy in the, in the war on the battlefield, and later they began to use them for reconnaissance because they were fast. And my grandfather went out, and he was one of the drivers of one of these half-track glorified trucks, and he caught shrapnel, and they went in and repaired his shoulder, and then they put him back in the battle, and then he got more shrapnel, and he came on back in, and they said, man, you're so beat up, we're going to send you home, and about that time, he got word that his whole battalion of half-track tanks got completely annihilated. Do you want to go into battle looking like that? against a panzer tank. Don't sign me up for that one. You got to put on the whole armor of God. This is what the text says over and over. It says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Put on, take up all of it, not just half of it. There's some observations about this text. If you look at it, just before we get into the details of all the armor, 
First, you, you, you can't put half of it on. It's all of it. God's saying put it all on. We don't go halfway. Second, whose armor is this? If you're fighting a heavenly battle against heavenly creatures and they're targeting you, do you think your, your armor's gonna work? No, 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 it's God's armor. He puts it on you. It's his armor. And notice what kind of armor are we mostly talking about here? We're talking mostly about defensive armor. Even that little sword, you know, we talk about the sword of the spirit, and we imagine this massive sword. Sorry to break the news to you, biblical news to you. This is a Roman, part of this imagery is Old Testament. Old Testament imagery of warfare, particularly how God is a warrior for you and me and Messiah Where's the belt of righteousness? But the Roman soldier, man, the Roman soldier looked like a tin man. <laughs> Tons of defense. And the offensive weapon that he had was this short, stubby dagger sword used in hand-to-hand combat. And even the implication here, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it's, even a def- it's defensive almost in nature. And so these are mostly defensive postures of standing firm. I want you to look at the actual armor, though. We, we tend to get caught up in the picture. And we don't really think of the real practical realities of this text. What do you see in here? See, the, the images point to something. They point to the belt, right? It points to what? It points to truth, right and wrong. And it's a belt because it cinches up the rest of the armor. And that's what truth does in our lives. It cinches up the whole suit. It protects us from Satan and really ourselves. What does Jesus do with the lies of Satan? What does he do in the wilderness? He tells Satan the truth. He reminds himself of the truth of his father, the word of God. We've got to put on the belt of truth. Truth has to matter. Now, we live in a world that there's no truth. You make up your own truth. Do you know how chaotic that is for a society to try to operate where everyone is right in their own eyes? No, the truth deviates between right and wrong that puts us on a path to walk down. We don't abandon the truth. It's like a belt that we cinch up the armor, the breastplate of righteousness. See, holiness protects us from the temptations, from the evil one, the gospel, the good news that brings peace. It moves our feet. It's interesting, this is all wartime language, but the gospel, even in the midst of it, brings peace because now we have, with the gospel of Christ, what do we have? We have peace with God who was once our enemy, but we also have the peace of God as we walk through the battle. That we're not freaked out, that we know that he's with us, and we know that the solution, even for the enemies, that perceived enemies that we have, is the gospel of peace. You keep looking at the different pieces here, you see the shield of faith. Like, this isn't the little saucer shield, you know, on the arm. This is the Roman door. So think of your front door, and that's what they wore. Huge defensive weapon. That's what faith is. And faith isn't just what you believe. It's living out your belief day to day, believing God, trusting God. 
and the temptations that come your way and the things that appeal to you, trusting God's way is better. That's what faith does as it works out in your life. Keep looking, the helmet of salvation, this is also Roman imagery, like the big iron helmet and the Roman soldier that protects our heads, our minds, so Satan doesn't get in our heads, which he does. And then you see the sword of the Spirit, and it outlines it. It says it's the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon. This is a spiritual battle. These are the weapons that we use against the evil one. When those bombs are dropping, when they're coming our way to allow us to stand firm. You know, I I applied the idea of wising up to young people, even though it applies. Let's talk to middle-aged people, my people. (laughs) Middle-aged people, you've been through some battle. You're not as probably idealistic as you once were, all right? You've, You've got a few wounds. You've got a few war rooms from life, from the spiritual battle. And so maybe that's made you a little wiser but it may have also made you a little bit more jaded, if you're just being honest. And so maybe what it looks like to gear up for us as we're a little bit more beat up, maybe it looks like us letting up a little bit. You can't let up. There's more on the line right now Isn't there? Your family, your marriage, 10, 15 years in, gets harder. There's more on the line. Satan knows it. He knows it. You fall when you're young, it's bad. You fall middle age, older age, it's worse. There's more on the line. Now, more than ever, dependence on the armor of God. Your faith, it carries you. You've also probably figured out in middle age, you can do some things, you can figure some things out yourself, or you think you can. And so faith is kind of like this tag on when you really need it. But you've got this thing. Now now's the time, open your Bible. Sword of the Spirit. Now's the time, trust the Lord by faith. No matter what the hurt and the pain, trust him. Don't put down the armor. Live by faith. Maybe life is like that chess player at middle age. where He's like, man, it's overwhelming. I've seen enough. I've fought enough. The world is a rough place. I'm in midlife crisis mode. I'm trying to make sense of my life and what I've accomplished. Don't let up. Take it up. Take up the armor of God. And if you need encouragement in that, I want to give you some. Whatever age you are, notice something about this armor. If you look at the armor, pan out a little bit. The armor embodies who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Look at it. He's the prince of of peace. He's the righteous one who gives his righteousness to you. He's the word made flesh. 
He brings salvation through faith in him that brings peace with God and the peace of God. Do you know him? See, the instruction isn't six things. The instruction is put on Christ. That's the instruction from Paul. Put on Christ. So we wise up, so we gear up. Last, we wake up. We gotta wake up. Look at it. Look at verse 18 or so and moving forward. We wake up. I said there's some offensive weapons here. There is the word of God. It's a lamp into our feet in the battle. There's also, do you see it in verse 18? Look at it. Prayer. Offensive. There's also something else through the lines implied. Who do you pray for? You pray for all the saints. This isn't an individual battle. We're a church family. The church is an army, if you will, if you want to say it that way. We fight together. We pray for all the saints in this battle. Later, you're going to see at the closing, you're going to see this Tychicus guy. He's the guy that sent the letter to Ephesus, and he's the beloved brother. You think Paul needed some help in the battles that he he was in? He had Tychicus. He had Titus. He had Barnabas. He had Mark. He had people around him. We don't fight this battle alone. We fight it in prayer. We fight it on our knees. We fight it with the word of God in community with one another. But notice the things about prayer. We got to pray comprehensively. We got to pray for all the saints. And then Paul does this thing here. He's like, pray for me for boldness. Like when you're in your worst spot, are you thinking about people who don't know Jesus? <laughs> right? Are you thinking about my own needs in prayer? Like what does your prayer life look like when the spiritual battle is raging? I'm trying to get comfort And figure this thing out from my life. And Paul's saying, not just that, pray for boldness. Pray that the gospel would go forth. You know what you see in the Bible? You know what's linked in the Bible? When you look at prayer and you look at the mission of God, what's linked in those things? The mission of God that we have, prayer and spiritual warfare. John Piper says it this way. He says it this way about the importance of not just prayers of comfort for us, but what prayer does in the spiritual battle. I've got it up here. I want you to see this quote. Prayer, he says, is a wartime, picture this image, a wartime walkie-talkie. Not just a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. Ouch. It's a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy left to ourselves is greater than us. Believe that. If you try to turn prayer into the domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions, and you wonder why. Where's God? It's not made. Prayer is not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. Are you calling an SOS out to God for help when the battle's raging? Are you just trying to figure out the solutions on our own? Man, is prayer a walkie-talkie for you in the trenches or is it just calling God like he's our butler for more and more room service? It's not that you can't pray for your needs. But how much is our prayer life rooted in our own comforts and our own needs as opposed to God help? Older saints, 
Don't hang it up. Don't give up. You've been through more than the middle-aged people. Don't hang it up. Don't give it up. He's still there. He's still warring for you. Maybe you're going through more. Maybe you're going through different physical. Maybe you're looking back at life, struggling with the regrets of things. Know that he's got you. Know that he's there. This text says, be alert. Wake up. Be alert. Be active in prayer. You know what other else, older saints? You know what the middle-aged people need? You know what the young people need? They need to be able to not just look at God, but they need to be able to look at the community of faith and go, I need to see somebody in the place that I am right now that's done this longer than me is walking by faith. I need somebody to sit down and remind me that God's got me in this battle. I need to see one of the beauties of older saints is they don't sweat the small stuff. They've been through it enough to not sweat the small stuff. What great encouragement you could be. If you don't have somebody older in your life like that, you need to go get one, and it's your responsibility to do it, not theirs. Go find you an older saint. Maybe it's mom and dad. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's a saint that you go, man, they are walking with Jesus still, and they're older, and I need that where I'm at. So we stand strong in the Lord. We wise up. We gear up. We wake up. We stay alert. When I think of spiritual warfare, which is what this text is about, I can't help but go one place in my mind. I go to Pilgrim's Progress, the great Christian allegory that talks about the journey from the old country, the country before you knew Jesus of the world, and the journey up the mountain to the celestial city, a journey that goes up and down, a journey that is fraught with difficulty in the battle. And there's a scene when the main character, Christian, how about that? Christian has left the old country. He's come to faith in Christ, and he's walking along this journey, and he's walking up this difficult mountain to the celestial city, knowing that's his aim, knowing that's where he's going. And he meets two travelers, and they're coming down the mountain. And he stops them, and he says, where are you going? And they say, they're battle-torn, and they say, we're going back to the old country. Why would you do that, Christian says? Do you know that there's a lion that is on the trail up there? Do you know all the trouble that's ahead of you? We can't take it. We're turning back. And in that moment, Christian has to make a decision. Am I going to turn back to the old country, or am I going to continue on? And here is what he says. If I go back to the old country, that is prepared for fire and brimstone, I shall certainly perish there. But if I can get to the celestial city, I am sure to be safe there. I must Venture ahead. To go back is nothing but death, but to go forward is fear of death, but life everlasting beyond. I will yet go forward. 
There's one thing about this text that I failed to mention on purpose. If you look at this armor closely, there's no armor for the back. No armor for the back. Why? Because we don't have to retreat. We don't have to retreat because Christ has won the victory over sin and death. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has made Satan a footstool, and one day he will throw Satan and the demons in the lake of fire. And so victory is already won. He's a defeated foe, but a defeated foe is still dangerous. But your takeaway is this. Stand firm knowing that Christ mops up our enemies. He mops up our enemies. The truth of the cross covers you from the enemy's schemes. The armor of Christ clothes you from the enemy. And we're able to contend for the faith that he's wrought for us. We can stand firm. Not because we can do it in our of ourselves. We can stand firm in the Lord. We can wise up, we can gear up, and we can wake up because Christ has mopped up. Amen? Let me pray.